0: Hey there listeners, welcome to Behind the Screens, unmasking propaganda in pop culture narratives. I am Kath,
1: and I'm Saras Marabe, and it's me Kiel,
0: I'm Kyla, and I'm Wednesday. Today we are diving into how pop culture and propaganda dance together.
1: From movies to memes, we're exposing the hidden influences that shape our world.
2: Get ready! for engaging case studies that reveal how media molds our view of global events.
3: Stick around to wrap it up with key takeaways and actions for informed global engagement.
4: This is Behind the Screens!
0: So, what is pop culture? It's more than just the music we groove to or the latest binge TV shows. Pop culture? short for popular culture, is a living, breathing reflection of our collective identity. It's the shared language we use to express ourselves, a communal code that binds us together. From the fashion we embrace to the memes that flood our social media feeds, pop culture is an ever-evolving landscape that mirrors our tastes, beliefs, and interests. It's not just about entertainment. It is a dynamic system that actively participates in shaping our collective mindset. Popular culture is the lens through which we view the world, a canvas where our ideas, practices, and symbols are painted, creating a rich tapestry of who we are and how we navigate this complex world. Diving deeper, we will find out that pop culture is a powerful communicator of ideas. Consider how a TV show can challenge our perspectives, broadening our understanding of different walks of life. Picture the influence a social media trend can have on our perceptions of beauty and success. Pop culture is not a passive observer. It is a force that actively engages in transmitting ideas, challenging norms, and shaping societal discourses. From the narrative arcs of movies to the lyrics of songs, every element within pop culture contributes to an ongoing exchange of ideas. It is a vessel through which powerful messages travel, challenging the status quo, or reinforcing existing values. In this way, pop culture becomes a medium for the dissemination and reinforcement of beliefs, values, and information within our society, which plays a significant role as well in the realm of politics. Pop culture and politics are two seemingly disparate realms that more often than not find themselves entangled. But before we dive into such intricacies, let's set the stage. Popular culture is the heartbeat of our society, reflecting our values, desires, and yes, even our political inclinations. It's in the music we listen to, the shows we binge, and even the hashtags that go viral on social media. So why does pop culture matter in the political arena? Because, again, it's not just entertainment. It is a mirror reflecting the collective consciousness of a society. And, dear audience, that mirror often reflects more than we might initially realize. One undeniable link between pop culture and politics is the influence of celebrities. From endorsements to activism, celebrities have the power to shape public opinion. But how does this influence work, and is it a two-way street? Let's start by acknowledging the undeniable truth that when a celebrity throws their weight behind a political cause or candidate, it's not just a fleeting gesture. The ripple effect of their endorsement extends far beyond the glitz and glamour of the screen or stage. But how does this influential dance between fame and politics actually unfold? Celebrities are not passive bystanders in this relationship. They actively leverage their platforms to win causes they deeply care about. Such advocacy transforms them into conduits for change, creating a direct link between their world and the causes they support. But this begs the question, what makes this connection so potent? Authenticity emerges as a key player in the celebrity politics synergy. So when a star genuinely cares about a cause, right? Their authenticity becomes a beacon that resonates with their followers. It goes beyond the superficial realm of entertainment, creating a profound connection rooted in shared values and genuine concern. But again, how do fans discern this authenticity? And why does it matter? If you were to ask me, it is a fascinating aspect. Fans have a remarkable ability to read between the lines when it comes to their favorite celebrities. The first layer often involves analyzing the consistency between the celebrity's public image and the cause they are endorsing. If there is a genuine alignment between the two, fans are more likely to perceive the endorsement as authentic, and this consistency goes beyond just the word spoken. Fans pay close attention to a celebrity's actions in history, evaluating whether their past behaviors align with the values they are now advocating for. And that is a crucial point. Authenticity is not just about the present moment, it is about the entire narrative of a celebrity's public life. If there is a track record of genuine commitment to social or political causes, fans are more inclined to trust the authenticity of their endorsements. So, it's not merely about the eloquence of the endorsement, but the substance behind it. Fans are discerning, and they can differentiate between a PR move and a sincere belief in a cause. But why does this discernment matter in the grand scheme of things? well authenticity is the glue that binds the celebrity to their followers when fans believe that a celebrity truly cares about the cause the endorsement becomes more than just a promotional tool it becomes a shared value a common ground that deepens the connection between the celebrity and their audience and that connection has tangible effects When fans sense authenticity, they are more likely to engage with the endorsed cause, whether it's by donating, volunteering, or spreading awareness. This genuine connection transforms the celebrity endorsement from a superficial nod to a catalyst for real change. So it is a symbiotic relationship. Fans get to align themselves with causes they believe in, and celebrities in turn become powerful advocates for issues that matter to them. This Mutual Authenticity creates a ripple effect, inspiring positive action and amplifying the impact of these endorsements. So, in essence, Authenticity is the linchpin that not only solidifies the bond between celebrities and their fans, but also turns a political endorsement into a force for meaningful change. Now, is it a two-way street? Do celebrities in turn get influenced by the political landscape they engage with? To answer that question, absolutely. Celebrities are not immune to the societal and political currents that surround us. The issues that dominate public discourse inevitably seep into their consciousness, shaping their perspectives. However, it is essential to note that their influence is asymmetrical. While they are undoubtedly affected by the political climate, their actions and statements carry a disproportionate weight, reaching a broad audience and igniting discussions on a massive scale. So, from here then on, it becomes a dynamic exchange, a synergy between the individual beliefs of celebrities and the societal narratives that influence them. Which raises an intriguing question WHAT HAPPENS WHEN A CELEBRITY'S POLITICAL STANCE IS POLARIZING? Polarization is, um, you know, indeed a natural outcome. Not every fan will agree with a celebrity's political stance, and that's perfectly okay. In fact, it often sparks healthy debates and discussions. Celebrities, in a way, become catalysts for dialogue, challenging perspectives, and encouraging critical thinking. They contribute to the democratic exchange of ideas, adding complexity to the ongoing conversation about the relationship between pop culture and politics. Now, why does narrative in pop culture matter when it comes to our political views? It's not just about the surface-level content that we consume. It is about the underlying messages and narratives that subtly influence our collective consciousness. These narratives have the power to shape our perspectives, challenge our preconceptions, and even mold our understanding of political realities. Consider the influence of movies and TV shows. These mediums have the ability to transport us into different worlds, offering a lens through which we view political scenarios. The characters, their motivations, and the unfolding events contribute to a narrative that, whether intentionally or not, leaves an imprint on our minds. It goes beyond mere entertainment, it is a process of narrative construction that mirrors, critiques, or even questions our political landscape. From the idealized political drama of Ang Provinciano, depicting a heroic scenes navigating political challenges to the darker political port- portrayal and bybust which delves into the complexities of the drug trade and its entanglement with politics, Philippine popular culture provides a spectrum of perspectives that shape our understanding of politics. And here is where representation becomes crucial. How various groups, be it based on race, gender, or socioeconomic background, are portrayed in pop culture influences or perceptions of who can hold political power and what issues are deemed important. The stories we consume contribute to the creation of archetypes and stereotypes that can either challenge or reinforce existing societal norms. Before we dive into our next segment on propaganda, let's reflect on the powerful influence of representation in pop culture, and as we have just discussed, the diversity portrayed in TV series and films and by celebrities shapes our perceptions and challenges established norms. Representation goes beyond mere visuals. It influences how we conceive leadership, how we understand empathy, and how we envision the distribution of power. This brings us to a critical realization that it is not merely about the storylines or the narratives. It is about the nuanced messages embedded within them. Whether deliberate or unintentional, these narratives become agents of change sipping into one's collective consciousness and shaping not only our political perspectives but also the way we navigate the world around us. Now, let's shift our focus to another dimension of this intricate relationship between pop culture and politics, which is the pervasive influence of propaganda. So how does propaganda infiltrate entertainment? And what impact does it have on our perceptions of reality?
1: Alright, so now that we know the intro and basics of pop culture, We can now move on to the intro and basics of propaganda. So propaganda plays a major part in how pop culture can influence politics. Like what was said earlier, pop culture is practically a mirror that can reflect our values, our desires, even our political inclinations. If you say that a certain entity is part of pop culture, then you can assume that such entity is very much a major icon for an entire demographic. Therefore such entity can be expected to wield massive amounts of social influence, which could affect politics or rather the distribution of power. In democracies like the Philippines and America, where people have the right to participate in politics and therefore distribute power, pop culture can and will play a major part in influencing the decisions and flow of politics. So where does propaganda fit in this picture? What relations do propaganda and pop culture have in shaping politics of countries? First, we need to address the definition of propaganda. Because the word gets thrown around a lot these days, the word propaganda is starting to lose a bit of its original meaning. Propaganda cannot refer to any information that people don't want to accept. Have you noticed that whenever people hear something good about a certain political entity that they do not like, they're quick to brand it as propaganda? In the Philippines, for example, Dilawans like to call anything that is pro-Marcos as propaganda, while Marcos supporters also like to call anything pro kino as propaganda. It's a bit funny, yet depressing. However, issues of polarization aside, the consequence of using the word propaganda has uh, obscured the true meaning of the word. Information that simply seems to give politicians bogey points does not automatically constitute propaganda. Rather, the true, real meaning of propaganda is information that could provide certain individuals and or groups any form of advantage in politics. Sometimes, potential advantages in politics are not easily detected. This is the reason why we must refrain from quickly branding information as propaganda, just because they seem to provide a good image for certain individuals or groups. There are times when individuals or groups can provide information that may seem to damage their image and yet still succeed as successful propaganda for them. So uh, how does that work? For example, let's say that a certain political party member's goal is to help an opposing political party due to whatever reason, let's say in this uh, money. If said political party member provides false information that could damn him and his political party, then it could still be considered as successful propaganda because it was able to achieve its goal, which is to help the opposing political party. There is more to politics than simply image. Sometimes individuals or groups are willing to sacrifice their own images for the sake of a political goal with a higher priority. In a nutshell, the true meaning of propaganda is information that could potentially carry out a political goal. Improving one's political image can be a political goal, but it is not the only political goal in existence. So now that we know what propaganda is, where does pop culture fit in all this? In the political arena, how can the combination of propaganda and pop culture influence the game of politics? There are multiple ways that individuals or groups can use pop culture to generate propaganda. It's not exactly a revolutionary concept, been going on since the ancient Greeks. Regardless, however, the importance of pop culture on propaganda is as critical as it is timeless. Like I said, it's not exactly a new thing. Virtually every state who's ever been to war has made a movie or two about the wars they fought. And time was proven that this is a very effective way to generate military propaganda. In America, for example, the war movies like Top Gun, a staple in American popular culture, had been found to be one of the main reasons why many volunteered to join the military during its time. For a more contemporary example, we have the Israeli state currently investing a large amount of money into their PR campaign to in the favor of the world. In their war against Hamas. Currently, one of the main PR strategies, of Israel is recruiting highly acclaimed social media influencers, particularly in social media platforms such as TikTok or Instagram. This is to help boost the opinion of countries countries from the Israel Hamas war in their favor. Icons of pop culture, such as social media influencers and movies, are an efficient way to generate propaganda. Since such icons already have massive social influence, a requirement for gaining iconship in pop culture, it would be easier for individuals and groups to convince the public in supporting their own political goals if they could get a share of the pop culture icon's massive social influence. It is a strategy as old as time. In ancient Greece, where plays were a major part of popular culture during their time, Ancient Greek politicians would often reward plays that are biased towards their own political beliefs and images, while plays that radical ancient Greek politicians or their political beliefs are often ostracized. In ancient Rome, the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders were so scared of Christ's influence on their popular culture at the time, to the point that the Romans and Jews opted to kill the pop culture icon to prevent him from challenging their authority. History also tells us that killing a pop culture icon is very bad for propaganda as the death of Jesus only further cemented his social influence. So now that we know the role that pop culture plays in propaganda, let's now discuss what exactly are the types of propaganda. Like I said earlier, propaganda can be any information that could serve an individual or group's political goal. There are many types of propaganda which may depend on either how they are formed or the goals of their formation. The types of propaganda that will be discussed in this podcast are not the only ones in existence, because in theory, there are infinite ways to achieve propaganda, for as long as information can be used to achieve a political goal or advantage. For the podcast, we are going to discuss five major types of propaganda. These certain types are chosen as they are either highly relevant, or the most common types of propaganda. Furthermore, the application of such types will also be discussed either through their major uses in history, or if easier, in a fictional yet realistic scenario. The first example of propaganda is called the big lie. A big lie type of propaganda is usually formed through the combination of one, creating a lie so big that people would be pressured not to question it, and two, lying about a matter so critical as to pressure people to refrain from doubting. it. A big lie propaganda could also be amplified if the people spreading such information have a high credibility, such as beloved politicians, doctors, or the like. Perhaps the most famous example of this lie was done by Adolf Hitler during World War II. Hitler used the big lie type of propaganda when creating the anti-Semitic conspiracy of the Jews purposely sabotaging Germany's performance during World War II. Historians such as Jeffrey Herf claim that Adolf Hitler took advantage of his newfound credibility in German politics, as well as the highly critical and sensitive topic of German defeat in World War I, to convince the people of the propaganda. Hitler reinforced this big-lie propaganda against the Jews by claiming that the Jews secretly controlled the world, especially enemy states such as Russia, the US, and Britain. Thus. Hitler's claim became impossible to argue against due to its sheer scope. The second type of propaganda is called agenda setting and control. Agenda control is particularly interesting as it is a highly subtle type of propaganda. Unlike most types of propaganda, agenda control does not need to alter or create new information to achieve propaganda. Agenda control achieves propaganda by influencing what people perceive as critical and relevant information through how information is spread. An example of how this can be done is when information that could threaten the political advantage of individuals or groups are barely covered in the news, giving an impression to the public that its relevance is low. Agenda control can also be used to influence how the public thinks by prioritizing the information that supports the interests of politicians as priority agenda, for example. A famous example of agenda-control propaganda is the Jeffrey Epstein case, where various high-profile politicians and businessmen in the U.S. are suspected of either committing or being an accessory to pedophilia. Such information is barely covered in the news, with many scholars claiming it as an instance of massive agenda-control to protect state interests. The third type of propaganda is called cherry picking Cherry picking is very similar to agenda setting and control, where prioritization of information is also used. The difference is that in cherry picking, creators of propaganda would often cut out other parts of certain information that are either deemed as a threat or simply irrelevant to their political interests. Then, the creators of the propaganda would only focus on the specific bits of the information that could serve their political interests. A contemporary example of cherry-picking propaganda would be the recent history of the Israeli state. Pro-Israel history books often highlight information regarding their displacement from their ancestral land, as well as their successful resettlement. However, the same history books also fail to mention the war crimes committed by the Israelis against the Palestinians in the process of reclaiming their land, such as the Nakba, or the genocide and massive displacement of Palestinians from former Palestinian land. Another example from the recent israel mass conflict is the focus on Israeli victories and the censorship of war crimes committed against Palestinian civilians in Gaza by a pro-Israel media outlets, where only information that could serve the political interests of the Israeli state is shown. The fourth type of propaganda is called a common man appeal, which is highly prevalent in countries where populism is trending. Common man appeal refers to the propaganda that attempts to garner support from the masses by claiming to be either an ally or as a part of the said masses. The goal of the common man appeal is to generate political support from the masses. This type of propaganda is highly prevalent in the Philippines. Perhaps one of the most iconic populist leaders in the country is former president Joseph Estrada, who framed his own political image as one for the people. One of his most famous slogans is the famous catchphrase, Arab para sa or Arab for the poor. Though a mountain of evidence linking the former populist president to corruption suggests otherwise, Arab's common man appeal propaganda is so strong that a relatively smaller yet fierce urban poor led as a tree protested, uh, protested Arab's arrest, with a branch of the protesters even going so far as to storm the Malacanang palace to attempt a rebellion. Last, but not the least, is the information overload type of propaganda. This is a simple, yet a clever type of propaganda, as it is more subtle than usual. Much like what its name suggests, information overload refers to convulating information that could possibly threaten one's political advantage or interest goal of information overload is to confuse potential threats to political power by making the opposition unable to utilize information that could threaten the political interests of propaganda makers. This type of propaganda is often used in poorer countries where education is relatively weaker. Corrupt politicians would often attempt to confuse the masses, for example, by making anti-corruption measures as difficult as possible. One possible way is to make anti-corruption measures riddled with red tape, thus overloading the amount of information needed to be understood by the less educated opposition and the masses.
2: To start off, it cannot be denied that the Holocaust is one of the darkest chapters in human history. The systematic genocide perpetrated by the Germans on the Jews during World War II left an indelible mark on our collective consciousness. The Holocaust, which was motivated as an act of genocide, is a manifestation of hatred, prejudice, and an abuse of power that should have no place in our society. Enter our third segment, Historical Propaganda, Weaponization of Holocaust as a Grand Stroman Fallacy. Now, transitioning to the current Israel-Gaza conflict, Different propaganda and narratives are in play to justify the ongoing genocide. But before that, let us first explore how historical propaganda and discourse shape our understanding of historical events. Enter the Grand Strauman Fallacy, a rhetorical device that distorts an argument to make it easier to attack. This can entail misrepresenting a historical event by exaggerating, oversimplifying, or outright distorting it. To quote the former president of the United States of America, President Bill Clinton remarked that in the Arab-Israeli conflict, no side has a monopoly on pain or virtue. But does anyone have a monopoly on truth? It is a hard pill to swallow that the way the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict is told depends on the perspective of the storyteller. This creates a difficulty for an objective political scientist, to whose story do we listen? How do we know that one story is not just as truthful as the next one? During the past decade, the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict has split into at least two conflicts, one represented by the older Zionist history of the dispute and the other embodied in the sharply contrasting narrative of the new Israeli historians. While each body of historical scholarship attempts to explain the underlying causes and provide a true account of the conflict, the old and new Israeli histories in fact allude to two distinct case studies. The question now is, who started the 1956 Arab-Israeli war and why? The older Zionist Israeli literature provides clear answer to these questions. The Arabs actually started it. And the cause of the war was the stubborn refusal of the Arab states to coexist peacefully with Israel. The conception of Israel as the victim of Arab belligerence and therefore not an aggressive actor is important because while it is clear to many contemporary analysts, although not necessarily to the public, that Israel initiated the Second Arab Israeli War of 1956. The carefully stylized portrayal of Israel as the victim casts a substantial measure of doubt over the seemingly straightforward matter of who was attacked by whom. As David Ben-Gurion asserted in a speech delivered in August of that year, the situation of the state of Israel is unique. It is doubtful whether there is another state in the world which, like Israel, is subject even in normal times to constant danger to its security. Similarly, Abba Eban, Israel's first ambassador to the UN, wrote that the special theme of Israel's existence has been hostility of its Arab neighbors. By stressing Israel's victimization in the face of Arab aggression, Zionist history is able to portray the Sinai campaign as part of a war that had already been going on for some time. Many Israeli leaders and official publications at the time made this point. The Arabs maintained that the war has never ended and that, so far from being under any obligation to end it, they are at liberty to pursue it by any means they have their disposal to use. Deputy Prime Minister Yigal Alon wrote, the infiltration of armed gangs from the arab states into israel began as early as 1949. before long it became clear that this is harassment essentially constituted the first stage of a small and unrecognized war this sentiment was articulated by the israel office of information as well since the signing of the armistice agreements in 1949 Israel has been the victim of constant Arab infiltration and has suffered heavy casualties. It was not until 1953 that Israel took its first protective action. By that time, there had been 7,896 cases of Arab infiltration, sabotage and murder, and 639 Israeli casualties. Nevertheless, Israel practices self-restraint. The theme of Israel as victim was advanced even by political moderates, such as Eban, who believed that the Arab government saw the Armistice in 1949 as a temporary phase in a continuing war which had never been renounced. Thus, it was crucial for the international community to understand that. Zionist history also goes to some lengths to suggest that Israel actively sought peace with the Arabs during the 1950s, but that the Arab world was not interested in reciprocating. Ben-Gurion recounts that during the year prior to the 1956 war, he was prepared to meet Nasser or any Arab ruler for that matter without prior conditions at the earliest possible moment in order to achieve a peace agreement or arrangement. Ben-Gurion offered the Arabs the chance to show the world what they really wanted, war or peace. On August 2, 1956, Ben Gurion asserted that there never was nor is there now any reason for political, economic, or territorial conflict between the two neighbors. He suggested instead that an Israeli attack would never occur. What does this story tell us about political science? Scholars from the international relations subfield would likely conclude that the Zionist story of the Arab-Israeli conflict affirms the claims of the realist paradigm. This is precisely what we find in the domestic structure and preventive war, which relies exclusively on the older Zionist narrative to assess the conflict. It is argued that the Suez campaign of 1956 came in the wake of a terrorist campaign by the Feidayin accompanied by the blockade of Israeli shipping in the Gulf of Aqaba and the Suez Canal. In addition, Israeli military doctrine, which is based on preemption and reprisal, offers strong support for the realist proposition that the anarchic structure of the international system overrides variations in the domestic structure. Thus, Israel faces extreme systemic constraints that it is a small state geographically isolated from other democracies, that is continuously fighting to survive. By this part of the segment, we have already seen the complex relationship between Zionism, Israel, and the rising wave of anti-Semitism, as well as the consequences of such interweaving. Israeli has bara or propaganda and its alignment with Christian Zionism have given rise to a sour moment in Israel's history where expressions of love for Israel coexist with blatant anti Semitism. The International Holocaust Remembers Alliance or IHRA emerges as a significant player in this narrative. Framing itself as an intergovernmental effort to combat anti Semitism, the IHRA has consolidated a definition of antisemitism intending to delegitimize criticism of Israeli policies, in particular diminishing the Palestinian struggle for dignity and human rights while amplifying the need for militant ethno-religious nationalism in Israel. The IHRA's promotion of its understanding of anti-Semitism is the latest attempt to instrumentalize anti-Semitism to control how people are allowed or not allowed to talk about Israel. This account of anti-Semitism, however, is only possible through the flawed equation of Israel with all Jewish people, forcing Jews all over the world to accept and endorse a military occupation and a country that is increasingly more aligned with the wave of neo-fascism, sweeping the world than with international law, democratic values, human rights, pluralism, and racial justice. Many young activists increasingly recognize that their safety depends on linking the fight against anti-Semitism to other social justice struggles. Many Israelis have taken to the streets to protest Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu's regime, and many others for years have decried the weaponization of anti-Semitism. Their critical voices are silenced within the entrenched ideological regime that the IHRA represents as it merges with white nationalist and Christian Zionist anti-Semitism. Fast forward to today, ever since the eruption of horrific violence between Israel and Palestine in the aftermath of the Hamas October 7 attack, it has sparked outrage in Jewish communities around the world. American Jews have even mobilized, raising a voice against weaponizing their grief and the legacy of the Holocaust. Hundreds of Jews flooded the Grand Central Station in New York City with a performance of civil disobedience, unfurling signs that read, Ceasefire now, not in our name, and never again for anyone. Then again, they mobilized on October 18 and stormed the U.S. Capitol building, which led to at least 300 activists being detained. Such organized demonstrations are noteworthy for framing how the Holocaust can be deployed to rationalize attacks and revenge as defense and humanitarian assault on military targets. Ending on an insightful note, Raz Segal, an Israel expert and associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey, criticized weaponizing the Holocaust by comparing the atrocities against Jews to the October 7 attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians. At the same time, it is acknowledged that the attack which left at least 1,400 Israelis dead was the single deadliest massacre of Jews since World War II. However, the context was completely different. A powerful state with powerful allies and a powerful army engage in a retaliatory attack against a stateless Palestinian under Israeli settler colonial rule, military occupation, and siege. They are thus portrayed and framed as powerless Jews in a struggle against Nazis. While both Israel and Palestine should be held accountable for their war crimes, world readers were distorting reality by not putting the conflict in the context of Israel's Settler colonial violence against Palestinians since the 1948 Nakba that will be further discussed by Gaila.
3: Okay, so let's do a quick Duolingo moment. Do you know what Nakba means? Well, it means catastrophe in Arabic and it refers to the displacement and cleansing of the Palestinians during 1948 by the Israeli government. Terrorism, massacres, destruction of cities, towns, villages, and even more acts of brutality. This is what the Palestinians went through because of the Israeli government and military. They were erased from their own homeland, with Israel militia looting and demolishing Palestinian property. And they were left with nothing. But let's go back in time. Remind a little, before the Nakba. Palestine boasted a vibrant and diverse society where Muslims, Christians, and Jews coexisted with equal citizenship rights and religious autonomy under Ottoman rule. In the pre World War I era, Palestinians actively participated in the Ottoman parliament representing their constituencies. The indigenous Palestinian economy was self-sufficient and interconnected with global trade networks. But things kind of started changing after Great Britain's mandate over Palestinians. This favored the creation of the Zionist political structures, disproportionately disadvantaged the native Palestinian majority. And then, in November 1947, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution dividing Palestine into two states, one for the Jews and one for the Arabs. With Jerusalem placed under the administration of the United Nations, the plan advocated for a Jewish state covering more than 55% of Palestine's territory. It's noteworthy that, even within the suggested boundaries of the Jewish state, the Jewish population would only have amounted to a minor majority. The Arab nations rejected the proposal, contending that it was just unjust, and contravened the principles of the United Nations Charter. This led to the Jewish military to launch attacks against the Palestinians, thousands were forced to flee. This escalated into a full-blown war, which resulted more than half of the Palestinian population to be displaced. An estimated 750,000 Palestinians were turned into refugees as the Zionist militia attacked major Palestinian cities. Other neighboring countries signed an arms disagreement. But even after the agreement, Israel continued to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from their own home. Israel has been trying to change history, and is blaming Palestinians for their own misfortune. Basically saying Palestinians were sacrificed for Israeli state building. Obviously, Palestinians not to blame, but Israeli government will do everything in their power to make their narrative a fact. That is why the Israeli government passed the Nakba Law, which basically prohibits Nakba mourning and recognition. It criminalizes the commemoration of the Nakba in state-funded institutions such as schools, research centers, civil society organizations, and political groups. There's the short film called Farha. It is inspired by a young Palestinian girl who experienced a 1948 al-Nakba. It is a film portraying the difficulties Palestinians faced during Israeli occupation. And it is directed by Darin Salam. The film was also selected as Jordan's 2023 Oscars entry. This film was celebrated all over the world for vividly portraying al-Nakba, also providing perspective on the events that led to Israel founding, which is rarely seen or heard in mainstream platforms. A survivor of the al-Nakba shared that the violence portrayed in Farha strongly resonated with his own harrowing experience fleeing the Palestinian village of Sarah. Following his family's expulsion, they embarked on a six-month journey on foot, seeking refuge in caves and under trees while grappling with scarcity of food and the constant pursuit of safety. He vividly recalls every aspect of that ordeal, from the distribution of flyers, urging Palestinians to evacuate, to the heart-wrenching cries of villagers who had lost their loved ones. The survivor emphasized that the prolonged denial of Vic's experience only intensified the pain and anger associated with being forcibly displaced from their home and country. He asserted a steadfast belief in Jerusalem and Palestine, expressing that the profound sense of loss and displacement would forever remain with him. Of course, the Israelis tried to limit its distribution. Days before Farha was released on Netflix, Israelis and their supporters shared videos on social media of themselves unsubscribing from the movie streaming service. Others spammed online film database IMDB with negative reviews despite not watching the movie. They called it inaccurate and hateful. Among other disparaging remarks, the showing of the movie Farha at Al-Sariah Theater in Jaffa also made a lot of people very upset. Protesters even tried to stop the movie. Israel Baitenu party leader, Liberman, and Israeli culture minister, Chili Dropper, strongly criticized the theater advocating for the withdrawal of the government funding. Another example, back in February 2015, Yona Yahav, the mayor of Haifa, a city in central Israel, decided to retract municipal funding for a ultra-film festival focusing on the Al-Nakba. The festival initially planned to take place at a local cinema the week preceding Israel's Independence Day, which is celebrated on April 23, ended up being cancelled. The cancellation in Haifa ensued amid a political uproar reminiscent of a Zorchow Film Festival held at Tel Aviv's Public Cinema in November 2014. Israeli politicians criticized the Tel Aviv Cinematheque when it was announced that it would host a three-day film festival. During an Israeli set session, Alex Miller, a parliamentarian from the right wing Israel Baytanu Party, labeled the festival as a pathetic attempt by the cinematech to take advantage of its stage to support Israel's enemies that are looking for every way to undermine our sovereignty. Limur Libnat, who was a culture and sports minister at that time, requested the Ministry of Finance to withdraw the state's 250,000 shekel, which is around $64,000 financial contribution to the Cinematech. As of August 22 this year, according to a report from the Hebrew newspaper Haaretz, Tel Aviv has been engaged in efforts facilitated by its defense ministry to keep historical documents Related to the establishment of the State of Israel, concealed from the Israeli public. These documents reportedly contain information about Israel's involvement in civilian casualties and the eradication of entire Palestinian villages. The Haaretz report suggested that Israel is actively implementing a systematic process. To conceal evidence of the Nakba. The document hiding initiatives are attributed to the Directorate of Security of the Defense Establishment, a secretive division within the Israeli Defense Ministry, known as the Malmab, whose operations and budget are classified. The documentation also includes details about the Israeli Hasbara or Propaganda in English, initiative initiated post the expulsion of Palestinians, aiming to reshape the narrative and deny the forced expulsion of the Palestinian people. In the early 1960s, the propaganda campaign disseminated false information, Including the unfounded assertion that Arab and Palestinian leaders encouraged Palestinians to leave during the 1948 Nakba. However, the information found in the one declassified file does not substantiate this claim. Instead, it highlights that the massacres carried out by the Israeli militias, such as the one in Yer Yassin, where over 100 men women and children were lined up and shot. So this instilled fear in many Palestinians, compelling them to leave and flee for their lives. However, despite all the Israeli efforts to eradicate Nakba history, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, commemorated by United Nations headquarters in New York. It is a reminder of the tragic events in 1948, and also the ongoing injustice the Palestinians are experiencing right now. The Nakba is a truly traumatic experience in their collective memory, and is continuing to haunt them
4: until now. As we delve deeper into the relationship between pop culture, propaganda, and the Israel-Gaza conflict, the involvement of key figures in pop culture, like celebrities, becomes a fascinating aspect of the narrative. The Israel-Hamas conflict beyond military and political dimensions has become a narrative battleground where celebrities wield influence and their expressions are dissected and debated on a global scale. It's a dynamic space where fandoms, geopolitics, and personal opinions converge, creating a complex tapestry of perspectives. The implications of this involvement are multifaceted, ushering in a new dimension to the discourse surrounding the conflict and simultaneously raising questions about the role of celebrities in matters of international significance. In recent times, Prominent figures from the entertainment industry, including actors, musicians, and athletes, have taken to social media to express their opinions and share information about the conflict. This intersection of pop culture and geopolitics has the potential to reshape public perception, mobilize support, and drive conversations about peace and justice. Take for instance... Comedian Amy Schumer, who found herself at the center of intense criticism after expressing support for Israel. This public stance drew the attention of none other than Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, adding an extra layer of of complexity to the discourse. The clash between personal opinions and public perception highlights the challenges celebrities face when engaging in geopolitical conversations. Model Gigi Hadid also became embroiled in controversies, sparking a clash with the Israeli government's official Instagram account. Her sharing of a graphic condemning the Israeli government ignited a wave of reactions, showcasing the power of social media and amplifying individual voices within the global discourse. Now, let's turn our attention to Selena Gomez, the most followed woman on Instagram. Gomez faced condemnation for what some perceived as a neutral stance, even as she expressed a desire to protect all people, especially children caught in the conflict. The scrutiny of celebrities' political views and the expectation for them to take a clear side in such complex matters underscore the challenges of navigating the intersection between entertainment and politics. And in the realm of entertainment, we can't overlook the case of Noah Schnapp, a cast member of the popular series Stranger Things. A video of Schnapp engaging with pro-Zionist paraphernalia went viral across social media, leading to calls for a boycott of the series' long-anticipated fifth and final season. The impact of celebrities' actions on a show's viewership demonstrates how these narratives extend beyond the personal and into the professional realm. Now, let's delve deeper into a rather controversial aspect the use of false claims for propaganda purposes. There have been instances where countries, including Israel, have leveraged misinformation to shape public opinion, even with the fan bases of global celebrities. Take, for example, the false claim circulating about Taylor Swift's bodyguard being involved in the Israel Gaza conflict. This narrative was designed to gain sympathy from Swifties, Taylor Swift's dedicated fan base. And when I say dedicated, I mean really, really dedicated. The spread of such misinformation not only blurs the lines between reality and fiction, but also highlights the lens to which propaganda can extend its reach, even into the realm of celebrity fandoms. Adding another layer of complexity to the propagation of misinformation, it's crucial to note that in the case of the false claims surrounding Taylor Swift's bodyguard, it was reported that the official Israeli Twitter account was involved in spreading this misleading narrative. The fact that a government's official communication channel participated in disseminating such misinformation raises concerns about the potential weaponization of state apparatus for political influences on a global scale. Okay, so keep up with me on this. The involvement of an official government account adds a layer of authority to the misinformation, potentially lending it an air of credibility that could sway public opinion. This raises questions about the ethical use of official communication channels, like the Israelis' Twitter account, and the responsibility of governments in ensuring the accuracy of the information they disseminate. The incident underscores the challenges in navigating the digital landscape where the line between state-sponsored communication and manipulation of public sentiment becomes increasingly blurred. The utilization of celebrity fandoms for political purposes by official state accounts also brings attention to the need for a nuanced understanding of the relationship between governments and pop culture. It prompts reflection on the ethical boundaries of political messaging and the potential consequences of blurring the lines between entertainment and propaganda. This convergence highlights the evolving nature of information warfare in the digital age, emphasizing the importance of robust fact-checking mechanisms and media literacy initiatives to empower the public in distinguishing between genuine news and orchestrated disinformation campaigns. Well, one thing that I can say about this, looking at it from a different perspective, is that one significant aspect of celebrity involvement is the amplification of voices from the region. By using their platforms to share personal stories, images, and experiences from individuals directly affected by the conflict, celebrities contribute to a more nuanced and humanized understanding of the situation. This personalized approach has the potential to invoke empathy and compassion, connecting the global audience with the real lived experiences of those in the midst of the conflict. In turn, this may inspire viewers to delve deeper into the complexities of the issue, fostering a more informed and empathetic global citizenry. However, the role of celebrities in political matters is not without its complexities and criticisms. While their intentions may be rooted in a genuine desire for positive change, the risk of oversimplification looms large. Complex geopolitical conflicts such as the Israel-Gaza situation involve a multitude of historical, political, and cultural factors that may be challenging to distill into brief statements or mere Instagram stories, tweets, Facebook posts, or so any social media post. Critics argue that the influence wielded by celebrities comes with a responsibility to thoroughly research and educate themselves before using their platforms to advocate for a particular stance. Moreover, the potential for misinformation or misrepresentation increases when individuals who may be removed from the daily realities of the conflict express their opinions in a condensed form. This dynamic underscores the delicate balance between using one's platform for positive change and the responsibility to present accurate and nuanced perspectives on complex global issues. Looking at it on a more positive perspective, Despite these challenges, the involvement of celebrities in the Israel-Gaza conflict can be viewed as a positive force for global awareness and engagement. Celebrities, as public figures, have the ability to draw attention to issues that may not receive adequate coverage in mainstream media. By using their influence to demand accountability, transparency, and justice, celebrities can inspire their audiences To become more actively involved in discussions surrounding geopolitical conflicts this heightened awareness coupled with the power of celebrity influence could catalyze increased support for initiatives aimed at fostering dialogue diplomacy and lasting resolutions to conflicts like the one in the middle east the intersection of pop culture and geopolitics in the israel-gaza conflict therefore presents both challenges and opportunities for shaping public opinion. Just to add, you know, the involvement of celebrities in the Israel-Gaza conflict brings attention to the broader question of the entertainment industry's role in political activism. In recent years, there has been a noticeable shift as more celebrities use their fame not only for self-promotion, product promotion, but also as a platform for social and political causes. This shift reflects a changing landscape in which public figures feel compelled to use their influence for the greater good. However, it also raises questions about the line between activism and performative gestures. Critics argue that some celebrity interventions may be more about optics than substantive change, potentially diluting the potency of their messages and diverting attention from the complexities of the conflicts they address. You know, the dynamics of celebrity involvement in geopolitics also highlight the power imbalances inherent in global conversations. Celebrities from Western countries, often with significant social, economic, and political privilege, may inadvertently overshadow the voices of those directly affected by the conflict. This introduces a potential risk of perpetuating a Western-centric narrative that oversimplifies the geopolitical realities of the Israel-Gaza conflict it underscores the importance of amplifying diverse perspectives and ensuring that the spotlight remains on the local voices and the real, lived experiences that may be marginalized or overlooked in mainstream narratives. Additionally, the intersection of pop culture and the Israel-Gaza conflict emphasizes the evolving nature of information dissemination in the digital age. Social media provides celebrities with a direct line of communication to millions of followers, enabling them to bypass traditional gatekeepers and share their perspectives instantly. While this immediacy can be a powerful tool for raising awareness and galvanizing support, it also introduces challenges related to misinformation and the rapid spread of unverified claims. You know we don't like fake news, right? So the responsibility of celebrities to fact-check and verify information before disseminating it becomes crucial in ensuring that their advocacy efforts contribute to informed and constructive dialogue rather than perpetuating misinformation in an already complex and sensitive geopolitical issue. And that is all for today's session we arrive at the end of another amazing episode of Behind the Screens, Unmasking Propaganda and Pop Culture Narratives. As we wrap up today's discussion, let's consider the enduring impact of critical thinking in our world. In a world where narratives are shaped not only by creative minds, but also by political agendas. The importance of questioning the stories we consume cannot be overstated. Whether it's the silver screen, the melody streaming through our headphones, or the social media narratives of our favorite celebrities, each element contributes to the complex tapestry of pop culture. Critical thinking becomes our indispensable compass, guiding us through the concealed dimensions Prompting us to delve deeper into the stories that capture our imagination. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Screens. I'm Wednesday, and if you enjoyed today's dive into pop culture and propaganda, hit subscribe, follow, rate, and share. I'd also like to give a shout out to our editors, JB and Lexley. Don't forget to stay curious, stay informed, and remember, question the narratives. Until next time this is 4pole 1 group 2 signing off